Well, hello again and welcome and good afternoon, good morning, good afternoon, uh, whatever, wherever you may be. Uh, hopefully you're enjoying uh, your day today. Uh, my name is Guy Stevens. I'm the founder and executive director of the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint. Uh, a little bit about us. I started the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint to raise awareness about the use of restraint and seclusion in schools across the nation. Our mission is to reduce, uh, to rather connect and educate people that are dedicated to changing minds, laws, policies, and practices so that restraint and seclusion are reduced and eliminated in schools across the nation and beyond. And our vision is ultimately to see safer schools for students, teachers, and staff. So again, we are excited to have another uh, great presentation for you today. I'm very excited to have Cheryl Poe and Maria Davis-Pierre joining us for a very special presentation. We will be taking questions today, even throughout the presentation. So if you have a question at any time, feel free to post those in the chat and we'll try to get to those. Uh, also, I want to remind you that today's event will be recorded. So this will be available later to listen to or watch. Uh, you'll be able to watch it on Facebook or YouTube. We also have it available as an audio podcast that you can uh, download and listen to on the go. So before we introduce our guest, I want to go ahead and introduce our co-host for today. And our co-host for today is Pamela um, uh Pamela, and she is, I'm sorry, I just lost my, lost my the screen here for a second. There we go. Uh, Pamela Anawu, who is our co-host, and she is also a member of the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint. Uh, Pamela believes in compassion, care, and empathy for the most marginalized, vilified, and often most forgotten among us. Uh, recently, it propelled her to run for school board in an effort to advance educational policy uh, for special education and other minority children. Pamela is the founder and manager of the State of Education podcast, and she recently started the Moms of Black and Brown Children Facebook group. Uh, Pamela is a content producer here at the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint, and I'm very proud to have her as a friend and colleague. So, Pamela, welcome. Thank you. Hi. Um, so, Cheryl Poe is the founder and owner of Advocating for Kids, Inc., a special education advocacy organization that provides resources, information, and workshops to parents and professionals with a special focus on addressing needs of black and brown children and those from lower socioeconomic status. Cheryl's the mother of two boys with learning disabilities ages 23 and 21. Cheryl's also the director of diversity issues at the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint. So also joining us today is Ms. Maria Davis-Pierre of Autism in Black, Inc. Maria graduated from Florida State University with a Bachelor's of Science in Sociology and went on to obtain a Master's of Science in Mental Health Counseling from Nova Southeastern University. As a licensed mental health therapist, Maria primarily works with parents to provide support through education and advocacy training. Her passion for working in the fields and in the, the field stems from her personal journey with ASD when her daughter received the diagnosis at a very early age. Well, welcome to both of you. Welcome, Maria and Cheryl. We're really excited Thank to have you. you both here today. Welcome. Yeah, we, Thank we've you. Got a, got a really great group here today. And I noticed in your introductions that we didn't really mention anything about NAPSI. So uh, <laughs> being that you're, you're both part of that organization, did you want to tell us a little bit? I know you just recently finished that great conference and you want to tell yeah. us a little bit about what that is? Yes. Go ahead, Maria. You want to? You want... I'll let you take the lead. As well. <laughs> Look, we're so humble. <laughs> The National Allies and Parents in Special Education, NAPSI, we did some rebranding this year. We went through some transitions and we added new board members, lost board members, and kind of just went back to our original mission, which is to be a parent-driven organization 
that really tries to provide resources and make space for black and brown children and those of under, underserved population. Um, we felt in the development of the program um, uh, that we know that there's a lack of um, black individuals, black professionals in the advocacy training world and or even um, Hispanics, but we have created a space finally where everyone is welcome to have their perspective be a part of the conversation. And we uh, did have a virtual conference. It was it was a last minute thing, Guy. <laughs> we were supposed to be meeting in person in Virginia in October, but uh, we couldn't because of the virus. So we went ahead and, and did a, our first virtual conference. And it was amazing. I, I really enjoyed being able to see so many different people present on so many different issues. That's great. And I really appreciate the the parent driven part of that. Um, because there, there are a lot of organizations out there, but you know, as a parent, it can feel a little bit intimidating when when everybody around you is a professional or has multiple letters after their name. <laughs> so that idea of a parent-driven group is really great. So thank you both for joining us, um, Cheryl. I'll invite you to get your presentation ready so we can bring that up on the screen. And I'll just remind our our viewers today that we've got a great presentation that uh, Cheryl's going to be going through, and she will be taking questions through the presentation, which I'm going to bring up on screen screen here. And let me go ahead and bring that up. And I'm going to mute Cheryl, not not mute you, you, but mute me and let you take it away. And if we have any questions, we'll jump in and let you know what those are. Okay, great. So hey, hey everyone. Um, again, I wanna uh, say that I'm Cheryl Poe and I do have all of my affiliations on the top slide. Um, as Guy said, that I am a part of um, Alliance Against Restraints and Seclusion. I'm also the board president of NAPSI and I'm also the owner and founder of Advocating for Kids. Um, today, I wanted to talk with everyone about some basic key rights that I think um, parents really need to be aware of and be aware of how to use those rights. I also am going to be giving the perspective of how using those rights can be difficult from a lens of a person of a black person or person of color. So this is my favorite favorite regulatory language in in IDEA, right? So. Um, and Guy, I'm going to make arrangements for you to put this, especially this particular slide on our website, on the website, because I want to, I'm going to walk through this with parents where and show them how to use the purpose of IDEA to ensure that the IEP that they have is really meeting the needs of their child. So um, the, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, the, the purpose of IDEA, which is where you get your special, special education services from, is that it is to ensure that all children with disabilities have available to them a free and appropriate public education that emphasizes special education and related services. And for me, the key pieces here are designed to meet their unique needs. So they're talking about that that faith must be designed to meet your child's unique needs and, and then prepare them for further education, employment, and independent living. So that's a mouthful, but let's, let's just break down the essence behind what this means, right? 
So the reason why special education exists, the purpose, well, not special education, but the purpose of IDEA is to ensure that kids with disabilities, right, can grow, can learn, can be successful. That the idea of developing that special education program with related services to ensure that it provides a free and appropriate education is around designing it to meet your child's unique needs. So how do you do that, right? So how do you do that? For me, um, that that is the IEP. That, that is a big piece. So what you can do is when you're at an IEP team meeting and the team is going through the present level of performance and academic function, you know, that front piece where they talk about your child's strengths, they talk about your child's weaknesses um, in all areas of functioning, then you can take that information and that's where you find out what your child's unique needs are, right? That's where it is identified that because of deficits in certain areas, your child's unique needs is that they are blank, fill it in. They, are, um, they have a diagnosis of ADHD and are unable to, social, uh, to emotionally regulate when feeling timed. Um, that's one example. Uh, you know, uh, the, the, to design the u- unique needs of a child who has weaknesses in verbal expression, not being able to express their intent um, to an adult or others. So, so your present level of performance should clearly state out what your child's unique needs. And if it doesn't, you take this slide right here and you share it with them and you say, but according to the purpose of IDEA, it says that to, in order for my child to get faith, right, I need, he needs, he or she needs special education services and related services designed to to meet their unique needs. So show me in this present level of performance and academic achievement where you're documenting that, right? And then from a perspective of, and that was just one example of how to use that language um, and prepare them for further education, employment and independent living. And, oh, I love doing this at an IEP meeting, right? Where they develop these, um, what I call, um, unactionable, uh, minimized goals where Johnny will, I don't know, um, do something at 75. This is the part that gets me at 75%, three out of five trials in a two week time period. I mean, this, the me- the measure measurability of it makes no sense, right? Or the goal itself isn't connecting to what we already decided was the child's area of weakness, right? So that's why you want to know what their unique needs are so you can develop goals. And then you want your IEP goals and you want to always keep this in mind. And I don't care how old your child is, if they're in preschool, kindergarten, um, fifth grade, sixth grade, high school, keep in mind when you are developing those IEP goals, the thing you should be thinking about is how is this skill going to help my child further their education, right? So how is the skill that we are attacking in this goal, that we're addressing in this goal, how is it going to further them educationally? Now, that could be going to the next grade. That could be a long-term focus. But that's a thought you want to keep in mind as you review the IEP goals with your IEP team. 
Sorry, I'm having glitter issues. Um, employment. As your child gets older, and especially during when uh, during the times, depending on your state, where you have the transitional IEP, where you know your your child is making a decision about um, further education, employment, or independent living um, for your functional goals, again or not, how is this goal? How are these goals? How are these services going to help my child be prepared for employment and independent living? So I um, I just really wanted to go through this because it is so rich and it works. I mean, I've, I've used it a number of times when I've had concerns with, um, you know, an IEP not really addressing the issues, but then wanting to use more of a format towards uh, standards of learning. And then, you know, that's when you can kind of then say, wait a minute, but how does this relate to his weakness and how does this relate to him moving forward? Um, so that's just a really good good one to use. Guy, can I check in? Are there any questions? Nope. Uh, so I just reminded people in the audience okay. that they're welcome to ask questions at any time. And I don't know, Pamela or uh, Maria, if anybody else has any questions. Uh, but I don't have any in the chat yeah. yet. All right. Um, so in uh, IDEA, um, parents sometimes don't realize that your name, I mean, not your name, but but the idea that you are a parent that you have certain guaranteed procedural safeguards. I mean, the, the IDEA talks about parents a lot. Um, you have procedural safeguards. Um, you, you, you are a key, well, the key, the most important person at your child's IEP meeting, um, you know, that they cannot schedule meetings without you. So parents, please stand in your power and your strength and learn what your procedural safeguards are. are, are. But they, and here is the link of where you can find it at IDEA. But basically, it's just saying that each state and local education agency shall establish and maintain procedural safeguards that are in in a in accordance with the law that ensures that students with disabilities and their parents are guaranteed procedural safeguards with the respect to provisions of a free and appropriate education. So parents, and this has been a, a hot topic around COVID, COVID learning, uh, crisis learning, because a lot of, there's also a, um, as, as far as your rights of participating in your child's IEP meeting, of course, you're, you are, you have every right to be there. It is part of your, it's in the law um, and it's considered, you know, a, a right of, or a provision of faith. So my recommend, I, I know that a lot of parents have been asked um, to sign paperwork that allows school districts to move forward with their IEP, with the child's IEP, without having an IEP meeting. Um, and that is allowed under the law. There is a provision under the law that does say that a parent can waive the right um, to an IEP meeting in order to, uh, you know, if they agree, but it has to be an agreement. My concern with that, which I know it's more convenient with the schools, and I and I get this. Well, the schools are overburdened, they're tired, they they can't schedule all those meetings every time they change. My problem with that is, and just be aware of, 
when they change those educational settings from one space, which it could be online to another space, which is hybrid one or two days in school, the needs of your child do change. You need to re-examine at least at the minimum, re-examine how even the transition worked for your child, right? That quick, because when they happen under the circumstances that we have, those changes are happening, happening pretty quick. And not all kids are really good, or not all kids are good with that shift, you know, that 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 shifting of, oh, one day I'm doing this, now all of a sudden I'm here, and, and, ha- and people holding the same expectations for them. So it is a procedural safeguard for you to be a part of developing your child's IEP. You are a key member of that. Um, but there are circumstances where school personnel may ask you to just agree to a change in an IEP. They send it home and you sign it. And that is uh, an option that's that's there. Is it one that I recommend? Um, uh, I guess it depends on your personal situation. But I encourage parents to make sure that if they are doing is switching back and forth, the the toll, the impact of that transition is part of that switch. That's part of the plan. Mm-hmm. Hey, Cheryl. Um, before yes. you move on, I, I have a, a comment and a um, question here. And I'll okay. start with the com- comment first, which, which is my own comment. But, um, you know, I really love to see you hammering down that point. Um, one of the things that I've heard from individuals sometimes is they talk about their IEP team as if they're not a part of it. They'll say, well, they made this decision or they decided this. And I think it's really important that people realize not only are they a member of the team, they're one of the most important members of the team who has more experience with their child than anyone else around that table. It's exactly. easy to feel intimidated in a room full of people with with advanced degrees and, and expertise, but you are an expert on your child. And, and it's so important for people to remember that. Um, so that was just my personal comment, just having heard that before, but I love that you really emphasize it. It's so important. Uh, the quest, first question comes from Alex, who says, do these safeguards also guarantee um, after the child reaches the age of 18? Um, that's, it, it depends if the parent has, um, has obtained educational rights over their child, uh, so that the parent still is the main person that's responsible for the signature legally, then yes, those same procedural safeguards exist. However, if the parent has not obtained educational rights for their child and their child turns 18, no, those those rights then pass to the child. Okay. And another question here from Ross. Uh, Ross says, why are IEP goals written the way you explained? For example, by May of 2021, Bobby will increase sight word recognition by 75% on four out of five attempts. 75% of technically what um, and 80% the goal is, you know. So why are they written like that and, and how might else they be written? <sighs> I can't explain at all why they're written like that. I, I think that that's like, it's it's like, that's how they were taught to do it. And maybe no one really took the time. Let's be honest, um, special education people, it, it is a department of body, right? That people often overlook, ignore, and don't pay attention to. So I think it was a trend that this is something that was put out by school districts, by their attorneys, that this is a style and it just took. I mean, when my kids were going to school, I didn't know that that was wrong. Now I do, <laughs> right? I think about it. I, 
I stop and I, I think about what the language is telling me in those procedural safeguards and the regulations. And I, and I say, wait a minute, that makes absolutely no sense. And um, so I think school districts do it because they just do it. I think parents continue to agree with it because they don't know any better. They don't know how to say no, or they want to say no, but they, the school doesn't make space for them. Or mm-hmm. they, you know, yeah. yeah. Um, well, we had a viewer that suggests that maybe they're intentionally vague. <laughs> there's a lot of reasons why they're probably <laughs> vague. Yeah. 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 I, I think that the, the key, one of the, and, and I'm doing more so parent right stuff than actual IEP stuff. We can do that another day. Um, but I do think it's important to, for anybody watching, to make sure that, that to, if you see like that crazy 75%, three out of five times, sometimes I see 75%, two out of four times. They don't even make that connection, right? Hmm. Um, Please stop them and say, explain the math to me. That's all you have to say. You don't even have to say you disagree. Right, right. You can just say, explain the math. And then and then watch the expressions on their face. Try to figure it out. It's yep. great. I, I remember having an, an advocate that I know that kept uh, talking about the importance of the question why and, and why yeah. stringing together the question why. Like if they explain something and it still doesn't make sense, asking again, well, why? Okay. Why? And it's amazing what you can find out if you continue to drill down and ask that question. So we have one more comment here and then I'll I'll let you get back before. Can I just jump in for one thought? Um, The the person that was asking about the goal, the the other thing, if if you saw my thing about the purpose, right? The purpose of IDA, again, too, if you get goals like that, the question could be how, right? We got the why, but then if they give you an explanation that doesn't make sense, then you say, how does that further my child's education? How does that prepare him for employment? How does that prepare him for independent living? They should be able to answer those questions too. That's great. Yep. Very helpful. So uh, this is more of a statement than a question. And from our our, our mutual friend, Jennifer, she said, this isn't a question, <laughs> uh, but can you talk about the IEP being a legal document and to be mindful about what is documented about your child in any legal document? <laughs> Jen, thank you for reminding me to say the disclaimer. I am not an attorney. <laughs> I cannot give legal advice. I'm an advocate, okay? So I can't say the legal... I choose not to to use the word legal document, but people do refer to it as a, a document that, that has legal um, standard, um, meaning that, uh, you know, if the document isn't done correctly, or if the document's not done at all, there are um, consequences in which a parent can use to complain because that's then a violation of the law. And that's what I have on your procedure safeguards, which are your state complaints, your due process case hearings, and your mediations. So I'm not sure if I answered the question, but... Yeah. And I, I wonder if in part her, her her statement is really just about the fact that, you know, you, you begin to create this paper trail about your child. And if they're saying things that aren't represent, you know, uh, appropriately representing your child, that maybe yeah. that's something that yeah. kind of could hang with them. Um, oh, yes. Oh, please do not agree to any, 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 anything, anything. I um, and, and I see this, especially with my black boys that I advocate for, um, you know, it's it's just cruel. Some, some of them are, some of the things that the people put in their reports, A, some of it's not even true. Half of it is just, you know, the kid 
um, so-and-so student A um, doesn't like to, oh, uh, doesn't like authority. He cho he chooses to not follow the rule. He chooses to not complete his work. Um, he's aggressive. I mean, just this so like it, it's like they are not even taking into consideration that within this child, in this person, in this male, is also a disability. Is that truly neurologically impacts how they can respond to environment and to just throw it and make it and develop it to make it seem like the behaviors are intentional and willful right. or that they can make a choice, um, I find disturbing. Um, right. Right. Who's ever on that team, I don't see them as being pro-student or pro-parent. Yeah. Yeah. Jennifer came back and said that it could be used against them later. And, and, mm -hmm. and, and Maria might know something about this, but I recall seeing an article recently out of Florida where they were talking about a school district that was using information from the schools uh, to create almost profiles in law enforcement related to kids that they expect it to be, you know, getting referred to law enforcement. So, so I guess once that, you know, if, if they're using these kind of, this kind of language about your child, um, you know, it, it's yeah. really important to make sure, as, as Jennifer says, words matter. And if somebody describes yeah. a child as violent, when in fact, it's not that they're violent, they're just not being appropriately accommodated. It can follow yeah. them. Okay. Well, let me let you get back to it. I'm sorry. We just had a bunch that came That's up. Fun. That's great. And I just want to go back again to my favorite example. Again, you know, if you see that nasty language in your IEP, you go back to the purpose of IDEA. And then you say, right. So what special, what additional special education and related, related services are needed to address that unique need that you talk about, talk about in there, you know, put it, put it back on there and when them on the framework of this isn't willful, this is part of the disability and they need, he needs, he or she needs specifically designed instruction. So what are you doing? How are you doing that? How does this match up? And the last thing on the records, even though I'm not particularly covering that, there is, you have a right under FROPA to um, challenge any information in your child's record that you don't think is appropriate or is, doesn't represent them. It's a whole process. You have a hearing, all that good stuff. But there are ways, if you see language that you don't like or that is not becoming or that is not true, um, I, I shouldn't say that you don't like, but it's definitely not true and doesn't represent who your child is. Definitely go back and request to have it removed and find out what the processes within the district are, because you can do that. So I'm going to go on next to some, um, I'm just going to talk about these four procedural safeguards. There's so many more. I, I thought that these were um, some ones that I really want to hone down on some good tips for parents. Okay, so the first, mis the most misunderstood term is written prior notice, right? Or prior written notice, because it I've seen it both ways. And you see, oh my God, I spelled it wrong. Um, you'll see PWN. That is not the notice you get before the IEP meeting. I've heard a lot of parents get that part confused. You get a meeting notice. Your regular, the part of your procedural safeguards are you get a notice that says you're being invited to an IEP meeting on that date, on a particular day, at a particular time, um, in a particular location. Um, you have a right to say that that is mutually agreeable or not. And then it'll list some of the people who are going to be at that meeting. And then you say whether or not you're going to attend. 
That is not the same as a written prior notice or a prior written notice. It's, that is your meeting notice. I am talking about at the end of the IEP. So you've gone through all the processes and you're at the end of the IEP. Um, in Virginia, you can sign consent. I think other states uh, that don't have to sign consent, it's a 10-day wait. Maria, how many days of a wait do they have to give consent if you're not a consent state? There's a time period in there, I'm not sure. Um, is it 10? <laughs> yeah, a, a time period of where you know you have a choice of saying, yes, you agree to it or, or you're gonna file. But that is, you really need to look and see what's in there. It should document for you so you clearly know what is the school proposing? What is it that they're changing? What is it that they're offering? What do they wanna do? What do they wanna take away? What are they recommending? You really want to make sure you understand that. And at the IEP meeting, does what they said they're going to do match what's in the IEP? Because if it's not, then you got a problem. Um, it should also have information about what instruments, what did they use, what tools did they use to come up with why they were recommending something. So say a child has... Uh, 30 minutes of speech pathology, serve individual speech therapy now, and the speech pathologist at the IEP meeting and then the IEP and then the service page says, oh, well, we want to reduce it to 15. Um, and they put that, they have to put that in the PWN that uh, a recommendation was made by the speech pathologist to re reduce services by 15 minutes, but there needs to be a concrete reason why. And if you don't agree with it, make sure that that's documented in there too. Okay, because you don't have to agree to that. Um, you have options, which are next. Um, the prior written notice should also, I also highly recommend that um, the look at what was rejected a lot or refused by the district because they need to put that in there too. So a lot of times you'll be in an IEP meeting, it was like, hey, I want what, 60 minutes of speech therapy for a week, three days, four, three days out of a week. School district says, no, we'll give you 15 one day out of a week. And then that's kind of where you are. So you want to make sure that in your written notice that it says um, parent requested this amount, school, just, school district refused or rejected that, and that they really explain why. They can't just say, we said no. <laughs> you know, and I think parents think, I think they think they can, but they can't just say, no, we rejected it and not give reason. They have to give an explanation that makes sense. Not only do they have to give an explanation, it has to make sense. You have to be able to say, you know, present it to either a hearing officer in a due process or in a state complaint and say, well, you said no, but you said no for reasons that make that either A, you're not allowed to say like, we don't have enough money or we don't have enough staff. Or you're saying no just because, and that's not enough. You know, the child, the, the parent, in order to give informed consent, they have to understand those things. Um, so then the next thing is uh, a state complaint, due process, and mediation. And the biggest thing I want to share, there, there are advocates out there, like the ones that are usually ex-administrators from a school district that go into business. Um, providing um, IEP services, coaching stuff, all of that. Uh, and, and my concern with that is because their lens is an apparent lens, that they are promoting not following a complaint. 
that they make it seem like it's bad advice or bad advocacy for a parent to file a state complaint or to file due process or to go mediation. They make it, um, and, you know, and I just completely disagree with that. Congress knew, they had to have known when they developed IDEA that there would be conflict over um, services or over what needed to be done. Because why else would they put in there? They, I mean, it's, it's, in, it's in the law that the parent has a right to file a state complaint if they believe the school district and the IEP team failed to provide their child with a free and appropriate education. Um, you, you ha- that's going to happen, and that's why you're allowed to do it. So don't be scared of your state complaints. Please do them. Don't listen to the noise out there that following a state complaint means you're going to have a horrible relationship with the school district. If you're at the point of your following that you want to follow a state complaint, your relationship is already kind of hurting. Um, due process. That's another procedural safeguard under um, dispute resolution processes that a, a parent can use, a parent or a school district. Now, I will say there is no state complaint again. You know, there's no like complaint the state can file, the district can file against you. Like they, like you can file a complaint against them. Due process is different. So the school can take you to due process or you can take the school to due process, to a due process hearing. Um, Rarely do I, well, in our area, our Tidewater area, I only know of two cases, one in Virginia Beach and they lost, and one in Norfolk um, where the school districts actually filed due due process against the parent to get the child out of a private placement or out of a a school. And then you have mediation and mediation is an option too. mediation is where the state pays for your state. And this is federal. This is not Virginia. This is federal stuff. Your state is responsible for identifying and paying for a mediator that is neutral, that can hear the case. It's confidential. Usually, I mean, in our state, it is confidential. Um, The information in there is not to be used against the district at a later date in a due process if it doesn't work out. Same thing. The district can't, you know, use information in what they hear in mediation to retaliate retaliate against you. Um, of course, you know the the general um, child abuse requirement reporting mandate still exists within that space, but not, you know, everything else is supposed to stay uh, confidential. So um, those are processes that. I'm really excited about it. If you guys are at our NAPSI conference, um, Cynthia Moore and Professor Bloom from Northeast University Law Clinic are doing a huge, neat project on state complaints with the law clinic there, where they are developing state templates so that it'll be easier for parents to file complaints against school districts and make systemic change because if you have more people filing complaints on the same issues, eventually somebody's going to look at it. So um, I'll definitely make sure AARS is aware of uh, that process as we move forward forward on um, working with her on that. Hey, Cheryl, yeah. can I pop in with a quick question? Sure. Uh, so you mentioned retaliation and you mentioned yeah. state complaints. And, you know, I've heard horror stories from people who <laughs> have, um, you know, be gun to have relationships that became contentious with their schools. Maybe they filed a complaint, maybe they did due process. But, you know, I've heard stories from from families that have had 
school system seemingly retaliate against them for their um, their actions. Uh, what what's your experience? What's your guidance? Um, what do you say to people that are afraid to do this because they're afraid the district might retaliate? I say that there are the possibility of school personnel on some level retaliating on you if you are advocating against the grain loudly and making progress on it, it's probably going to happen to some degree. Um, and it may be as subtle as, oh, guess what? You can't you can't email your teacher any your child's teacher anymore without the assistant principal being CC'd. Um, it may be you can't communicate with your <laughs> with your child's teacher at all. You have to talk to the principal. Um, it could, you know, so, so there, or to more blatant um, things of where they call child protective services right. against right. you. I mean, right. that's, those are all possibilities. Um, I, I, I think I specialize in the really like, oh my God, I, did they really do that kind of cases? Like you're nasty, you know, you're, the violations are just so, you, you can tell the school took advantage of the parent not knowing their rights and just mm -hmm. did all kinds of things. So usually at that point, I share with my with my client if they express that if we're going that route, and I'm like, can they retaliate any worse? I mean, think about it. You're they suspended your child. They've called the police on your child. They made recommendations for expulsion on your child. They your child's reading on a second grade level, but they're going into the ninth grade. How much more harm can they do? Right, right. Yeah, and of course, sometimes you know parents have multiple children and worry about yeah, kind of situation one affecting situation two and. You know, um, Kim Kim commented on in the comments and said retaliation does and did happen. Uh, had her own experience with uh, retaliation. Um, so yeah, definitely definitely something to um, be mindful of. I guess. Yeah, yeah. parents, so, if you, you know, to be a parent of a child with a special ed um, for of a child with a disability, we we have a special kind of drive, right? So you know, it's like. Um, it, it, this is just one segment of the life of a parent of a, of a child that, that has a disability, right? They have all these other segments that, so it's, it's not like we're not used to having to push, um, right. but the, you're right. If you do have a personality, even parents that are just shy or trust the school, and then they realize the school is uh, not telling the truth, you know, they're, they're devastated. Their feelings are, are literally hurt because they had relationships with people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I have a question, and, and we just had somebody else, uh, Jason Dow, who said uh, I had re a retaliation experience. Um, but the question is, let me find this here from Ross. He said, I was recently in a meeting, and I'll bring this up on the screen, uh, not that you'll see it, but I was recently in a meeting where a student uh, had adapted physical education services on their IEP. The charter school did not have a general education PE program. The school's reasoning to drop adaptive um, physical education services uh, stated it, it was no PE program to access, so there was no reason to provide a specific adaptive PE services. Is this legal and good reason to drop adaptive PE services? And I know you gave the disclaimer, but you're not an attorney, but what's your take as an advocate? So if that case came to me, I would um, definitely review why the child was receiving adaptive PE and, it's, and, and if the need, if the skill deficit still existed, if whatever the goal was attached to the adaptive piece still is needed to be worked on, then I would have an IAP meeting immediately and say that um, you are still responsible for providing the service because it's the need of the child. And if it's in the IEP, they can contract out with people. Uh, that's, that, that is something that 
if the if they didn't work with me on the local level, I would definitely uh, look at following a state complaint, especially if they put that in writing. If they put in the PWN, right, the prior written notice that we dropped adaptive PE services because the school didn't have that service available. I think you could probably call the state and say, hey, I have I have this this statement. I, I don't think this is true. Can you help me work with my school to <laughs> fix that? And then make sure you get compensatory services for time lost, right? Because if you get it fixed and they're like, okay, you're right. He's supposed to have that anyway. You also need to be asking for time lost because that's skill. They need to make up for not doing it when they were supposed to. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. That's it for the questions for the moment. So I'll go right. back on the mute. Uh, I'll go back to it. Now I'm going to talk about independent education evaluations. Um, these these are, are really this is a good piece of IDEA that I think is very parent friendly, very child fair. Um, an independent education evaluation is when after the school district has conducted evaluations and assessments on your child, um, they look at that information, they use the information to develop IEPs, they use the information to determine eligibility maybe, or they're using the information to um, just for programming. Um, and you don't agree with the information in that uh, in that evaluation, you have a right to ask for what's called an IEE, which stands for Independent Education Evaluation. Now, um, these here, I in my area of Virginia, and and for the most part in Virginia overall, I've not heard of a lot of problems with with. Uh, getting school districts to actually agree with that without fi- filing a due process against the parent. I am very aware of other states, especially I think Texas likes to do likes to do it a lot. Um, maybe even I've heard some issues about it in Florida, but other states will say, "Hey, we we think that our IEEs are great," and they'll just take the parent to due process. Now, the problem with that is if they're taking the parent to do process, that parent that has to get an attorney and get representation. So a lot of times they, they, um, some school districts use that as a tactic, tactic to not have to pay money for the parent to get a really good evaluation that addresses their child's needs better than the one that the school did. So just be aware that, yes, you have a right to it. You should ask for it. But the school district has two things they have to do. They have to either grant the IEE or take you to due process to show why their evaluation is appropriate. The other thing is, if you if if, the, if you ask the school for the IEE and they say no and they don't do any of those things, you can go and get your own independent evaluation and say, "I disagree with your evaluations." You got to put it in writing. I disagree with your evaluations that were conducted. Um, for speech or for psych or for all the evaluations that have been done for the last year. And I'm going to be getting IEEs and will submit for reimbursement um, for after I pay for those. Um, I don't recommend that. I, I recommend that this is what you do. You know, if you don't like the evaluation that the school did, then you just sit there and you say, I'm not happy with this evaluation. I disagree with it. I would like an IEE. And then I would put that in writing. And then just go from there. Now, when you get that permission, skill. Oh, I'm sorry. It looks like you you uh, froze up oh, there, Cheryl. Are you okay. there? Am I here now? 
You're back. Okay. You're back. Yep. So when you get your okay. IE, make sure you're going to a specialist in the area that you're concerned with. Like check your area. You know, if, if you're concerned that the school's um, evaluation for a child that has ADHD had no executive functioning evaluations done at all, right? Find somebody in your name, in your community that, you know, works a lot with kids that have that particular disability and will evaluate all aspects of the disability so that when you take it back, you can then have that information added and considered in the IEP as you move forward. Um, informed consent, I kind of talked about that earlier. I, I feel that that kind of really ties in with your the notice of what they either offered or didn't offer. And informed consent, and this is one that they use against parents, at least in our area, a lot. Um, because you, we have to sign in Virginia. The parents have to sign to say they give consent. And in other states, almost all of them, parents only have to sign the first time the child's found eligible for services. That's the only, that's the only time they have to sign it. But they still have to give consent. Um, if you accept the IEP and you are saying, I agree, I consent to this IEP, you are literally saying any information in there is what you are, that you've been informed, that you understand it, that someone's explained it to you, and that you consent that that is correct. So I highly recommend you being a little more careful because I can't, there's, I can't think of a time, I know at least in five due processes I had have done in the past, that would be an argument for a dismissal. Um, on a particular, I saying that a child didn't receive FAPE under a particular IEP that a parent consented to. And their argument is, well, the parent signed it and, you know, informed consent. So they knew what was in it. Otherwise, they wouldn't have um, signed it. And, you know, so that's I've seen that argument over and over again against parents. So just be aware. Um, and if there is something in the IEP that you're not really sure about, it is OK to ask them to document that and say, listen, I'm giving consent. But there are some pieces I'm not clear on. Um, maybe, um, I and request parent training on what that what those parts are, just 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 to kind of protect yourself. Like I I know you shouldn't have to, we shouldn't have to, and it's horrible that we do. But I think parents need to realize when you are dealing with special education, it is a whole different world, and you kind of want to go from your advocacy process uh, processes of always thinking about protecting yourself, protecting your child. And the best way to do that is to document, 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 to ask how, what, and when, and to say, I don't understand. Please help me understand that better. And if you still don't understand, ask for the related services of parent um, parent training, right? I mean, because, you know, when something does go wrong, you don't want the school to be able to blame you for agreeing to something because you didn't understand or no one ever told you that you have the right to say no, you have the right to ask questions, you have the, the right to ask for things to be changed. You have a whole bunch of rights. So um, any questions? I just want to really hone in on that one. Yeah, yeah. So, so a question, a couple comments. Let me start off with a question. Uh, okay. This one from Amy, who said, I was told if I did not agree and did not sign, they would go ahead with the plan I disagreed with. Then what? What uh let's see amy what's what state are you in let's see if she responds here um and and while we're waiting for that um you know a couple of people brought up the the issue of the expense of due process hearings 
and, um, you know, um, not being able to find pro bono legal help or, you know, um, you essentially being, being, being squeezed out of it because they weren't able to, to find, um, to find help. Any, any thoughts on that? Absolutely. A hundred percent true. And if you are lower social economic status, it's almost probably it's, it's harder too because the, I mean, the, the legal aids in the area uh, sometimes don't have experienced people that even know SPEDIT to represent you. And they're usually understaffed and overworked. So, um, and, so this is where I like to share with parents and advocates and professionals that are out there in this world. Every, it is a requirement that each state department provides a list of free, what is it, free and low cost Attorneys for parents, they for for the reasons of being able to go to due process. I I suggest that you all get that list. I suggest that you all call up and find out if any of those people are actually providing services at low bono or free. And if not, pull some a pull a group of ten parents together and start sending letters to your Department of Education saying you're not meeting the rules here as it relates to parents being able to have access to free or low bono attorneys because nobody on this list you shared provides that support. I actually did that for Virginia about a year ago. And it, some of the phone numbers on the list weren't, weren't, weren't even working um, anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, like it was like, it was one of them was like the university of Richmond where they used to have a law clinic. It doesn't even exist anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was really, 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 it's, it's sad. It's horrible. And these are little great grassroots efforts that parents have the power to change when they come together with letter writing, with, um, you know, and, and, and being vocal. So, but you're right. Due processes, they're not easy. I mean, I, and it can be expensive. I've heard parents paying up to hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal fees for it. Um, there is the piece, though, if the parent does win, then they can go to court to get their legal fees reimbursed. So okay. if you go through it, you win, you can, the, they can apply to get their um, legal fees paid back to them if you can put, put it up front. And if you're lucky and you can get a, an attorney that will do it on a contingency rate, or I've heard um, this, one, this one attorney, uh, two attorneys, two males out of North Carolina, they, they do it from a perspective that the parents are responsible for getting the or paying for expert witnesses, but they'll do the hmm. due process on contingency. And if they win, then they get the legal fees. So it's, you know, I, I think if you can find an attorney that's willing to work and be creative with what is allowed in IDEA, that, um, and we make that more more uh, public, like, like what attorneys are doing to help parents out, Maybe we can change the statistics because right now they're horrible. Absolutely mm-hmm. horrible. All right. Um, so thank you for that. And uh, Amy got back to us and said she's in Illinois. Illinois. Okay. So um, did they? So yeah, I broad nationally. I will say that they would have had to at least given you something in writing explaining their position. And if they have not, then I would send an email back or a letter back saying, it's my understanding that your position is 
if I don't do A, B, C, or D, that you're going to do C, you know, A anyway. You're going to do what you want to do anyway. Please provide me with the regulatory language that allows you to do that. And I would CC the next highest person. So if it's the teacher that told you that, I'd CC the AP. If it's the AP, principal. If it's the director, sped ed, they have a boss. Everybody has a boss, <laughs> even the superintendent up to the, um, you know, because the school board. So that's what I would do first. And then I would seek out a skilled attorney. You're in Illinois. Matt Cohen, um, he, he's a great attorney out there. Uh, he's on the board of COPA and he has a law office in Illinois. I'd recommend you look him up. He has advocates also. Okay. Uh, there was another question here about uh, asking you, and let me pull this up here, uh, asking you to explain the status of IEEs and VDOE uh, in terms of non-compliance. <laughs> Man, that would be a great ruling. So um, that VDOE stands for the Virginia Department of Education. The Virginia Department of Education was found to have regulatory language in their state regulations that went against what IDEA said um, they were supposed to write, right? So IDEA, the Individuals with Disability Act, the big law, that when a state receives money, like Virginia saying, I'm going to implement those laws, they have to develop regulatory language that matches IDA. The VDOE had an extra word under their regulatory language where it said that um, the IEEO, in order for a parent to get an IEE, it, it would be the parent had to disagree with a component of the test. So it was like the word component that school districts were using to really deny IEEs and the VDOE to ignore. So when OSAP did their audit, they came and they said, nope, yeah, VDOE, Dr. Lane, you need to fix this because it is out of compliance with the law. Um, it has been fixed. He put out a memo in September 2020 where you can see that he changed some of the language um, to match that and some of the other things that they were um, told not that they didn't do very well with. I hope okay. I asked, that answer your question. Okay, great. Well, uh, we have a couple more questions popping up, but let me let you All continue. Right. I'm going to move to my next slide because, um, oops, if I can figure it out. Okay, go ahead while you ask that question. Okay. Oh, did I freeze? Oh, I'm sorry. Um, I was going to let you go on, go ahead with your next slide. Oh. oh, okay, great. Thank you. So I just want to get to these next two slides because... This is something that I see, in fact, in, in impacting um, black males and students of color. Um, I, I, I see how there's a, okay, let me rephrase that. We all, um, I'm assuming you all are aware that African-American males are suspended more than any other group out of our public schools. And that's not just Virginia, that's just across the, nat- the nation. That is something that has always happened. Um, those suspensions, those exclusions from school lead into the school-to-prison school pipeline. Um, and Black children and children with disabilities and Black children with disabilities are, are targeted, in my opinion, for that school-to-prison pe- pipeline based on that. This right here is a provision that I wish more parents knew about and more advocates used, or even the courts. I mean, gosh, if there'd be some way to get the courts to recognize this. So in the regulatory language, there's a piece that says protections for a child not yet identified for special education and related services. 
So basically, this is the legal definition, but I'm just going to kind of run it down into really, really simple terms. If a child engages in a behavior that violates the code of conduct, a parent may assert that that child still has should have protections under IDEA because the school should have known or had knowledge that that child had a disability. Um, so I'm going to read this and then I'm going to go through all the pieces of that. So uh, when a child who has engaged in a behavior that violates a code of conduct, let's say the kid, um, what, threw a ball at a student, a tennis ball at a student in this classroom, that student may assert any of the protections provided for, for in this ch subchapter, if the local education agency, and that is your LEA, that is your school district, had knowledge, really had been made aware of, as deemed in accordance within this paragraph, and we'll talk about those, that the, that the child was a child with the disability before the behavior that precipitated the disciplinary action occurred. So if your kid... As always, if you have a kid that you have been complaining, the school is is calling you up every day saying a wrong way, saying, come get your child, um, come get your child for a half day. I, I get a lot of this with the little guys, right? Um, the uh, like first first grade, second graders, parents call me and say, oh, the school keeps calling me to tell me to pick up my child. He's behaving. He's not participating. He's he's uh, taking toys from his peers. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And I'm like, well, have you told the teacher? Oh, yeah, she knows. She writes it down all the time. If it's a situation like that and the recommendation is for your child to be removed from school and um, and any of these things happen, you can fight that, that funnel of exclusion. So, if at any point the parent put in writing, hey, I'm have my, I think my child needs some special education services or some related services or even has a disability before the behavior, that means the school had a basis of knowledge. And that means that child has the protections of the manifestation determination meeting before they kick them out. If the parent of the child was requ had requested an evaluation, Prime example, you're in the evaluation process. Um, school's like, you know, you're right. Um, little Johnny might need some special education supports and services and related services. Let's start the evaluation process. Um, if you're in the process, that's considered, you still have the protections. But if the parent put it in writing and the school's like, nah, we're not, we don't think he needs this, that gives the basis of knowledge to then consider the manifestation determination. The next one is the teacher of the child or other personnel of the school district has expressed specific concerns about a pattern of behavior demonstrated by the child. How many of you have had a teacher call you and say, please, you know, either come get your child earlier from school. Um, talk, please talk to little Johnny. He was so disruptive to little Susie all day. Um, you know, virtual. Let me give you an example. Virtual. Uh, your your child just refuses to sign on or participates, or they are doing something inappropriate. If your teachers or staff are telling you over again and again and again that the child has some issues, 
and you have that in writing, and then they want to suspend the child, right, or go go into that process of excluding excluding the child from the school, that would be considered having a basis of knowledge. So I I just think that that is important. And if think about it, if so, think about from this perspective, you have a judge, right? And he's sitting there and this kid clearly has disabilities. School hasn't done anything to help the child other than document all the similar same behaviors that have led to them pressing charges. And then if you as the parent can go and say, well, wait a minute, this the law says this. There's some the school had a basic a basic knowledge that my child needed special education services and didn't do it. I believe you would have a different outcome. Right. Because there would be a reason for the judge to say, well, wait a minute, you're right. You know, there's there's IDA here that says you should have known or considered Dean as knowing because you documented for a month all these behaviors that the child was doing and you did nothing. You did nothing to, to address it other than refer the child for expulsion, refer the child into the court systems. So, um I, I just find, you know, that's a theory, right? That that if um, uh, the legal, the intake, the people that are part of that on the other end of receiving the school to prison pipeline from, from school districts, if they had this kind of information, I, I think it could reduce maybe the, the funneling of some kids into um, the school to prison pipelines. Just a theory. Can't prove it. But I think it's a good theory. Next. Okay. Now, um, evaluation, assessment, and and data. Um, What you need to know, Maria Davis. So now is where I want to um, kind of talk about how all of that stuff I shared, all of those laws, all of this information is race neutral, right? However, for Black American parents, I have a much harder time accessing any aspect of special education services because our special education services and our educational institutions are are, um, forms of institutional racism, right? They are laws that are developed by white people with white people in mind. Um, Prime example here in Virginia with our restraint and seclusion laws, um, we had a group of uh, people, stakeholders, that were part of the process of developing the Virginia restraints and seclusion pieces. However, not one person was black, even though all the data says black children and children with disabilities are restrained more than any other group. So when you're developing a law and you already know that it's going to impact black children and children with disabilities more, and you choose not to make space for those people, that's how institutional racism is maintained. And that impacts parents' experiences in all aspects of special education. And um, this is just not Virginia. This is across the country. So Marie davis Pereira is going to kind of talk to you about her experiences, um, and especially around um, assessments and evaluations and and data. So Maria, you're up. Thank you, Cheryl. Um, So I, I think it's important to first start with knowing um, about systemic racism within the school system, Uh, knowing about uh, implicit and explicit biases when it comes to the staff 
um, against black children, black and brown children and their parents. Um, so understanding the adultification of our black girls um, and how language is used to uh, kind of funnel our children into the school to prison pipeline. So black children are held to higher standards than any other race of children. Studies have been done on this, you know, far and wide and the research backs up the claims. Um, so black children are held to more higher standards because of the biases that teachers and staff have um, against our children. They see them in more adult roles just because of their skin color. So if I'm constantly holding um, a five-year-old to the standards of a 10, 11, 12-year-old, they're never going to meet that unrealistic bar. So they're constantly going to be failing in that teacher's eye and be seen as a problem when the issue really is the bias that that teacher has against that student. Um, so those things have to be addressed. Um, the American Psychological Association has done a study um, on prospective teachers uh, looking at um, bias within the, the, the teachers. So they had, you know, students uh, from all different races express six basic emotions on their face. And what the prospective teachers um well, what was found in the study is that prospective teachers saw black students, um, in particular uh, black boys, as uh, displaying anger more than any other race. Um, and that's just by looking at their face. They're not saying anything. That's just by looking at your face and saying, oh, you look angry. So we have to take these things into consideration when thinking about navigating now this um, special education system. So knowing that there are biases, implicit and explicit that my evaluator may have, that's gonna come into the room. Also knowing that the evaluations itself are biased against black children. Um, just because again, the mental health system was uh, a system, our DSM was created by white men on white men. It's no cultural context within that. So our, um, and you know, there's also been rulings, especially in California, that certain um, uh, IQ tests can't be done on black students because of the bias. So we know that it's there. So if I have a biased evaluation and a biased evaluator, that puts my child in extreme danger. Let's just be completely honest with it. Um, you know, cause they're going to be misdiagnosed, placed in a placement that is not for them, uh, have interventions that are not for them. So again, leading them to school to prison pipeline. And these are things black parents have to think about. And not only are these biased against their children, but them as well. You know, walking into a school system, they are going to automatically think something of me just because I'm I'm black. You know, the state the same study that was done on the children was also done on adults with the same findings. So I can walk in and they automatically think I may be angry and I'm not. So that automatically puts them in a certain position of how they're going to interact with me. So these are things that we constantly have to deal with um, before we even get to the advocating part of our child. We are having to deal with all of these biases. We're having to deal with the system that is oppressing us from accessing resources. Even before we can sit down and have a conversation about now, 
what this means for our um, our children. So these things have to constantly be um, taken into consideration. Um, Cheryl, did you have any specific questions you wanted me to to talk about in in my experience or as not only a parent but um, an advocate professional? And, and um, do you mind just sharing because you know you're you're licensed mental 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 health professional. Mm -hmm. um, did that give you, did they treat you any better? I mean, I, I you know, there's that, that sense of, um, I, I've heard people say that, oh, but, but if you're smart and if you and if you dress a certain way and you talk a certain way and you're black, they'll, they'll treat you better. And and I want you to elaborate on that myth that you yes. told by white people. <laughs> so Cheryl already knows the answers to this. That's why she's <laughs> in particular. So I am a licensed mental health counselor. So I am a clinician. My husband is a physician. He is an in, in, internist. Um, and that means absolutely nothing <laughs> in their eyes, right? Um, of course, it means a lot to us because we work really hard. But in their eyes, it, it means absolutely nothing. I'm not seen as a professional. Um, I'm not seen as one of the only people in the room that can actually give a clinical diagnosis by background, um, me and my husband. Um, so they don't take that into consideration, um, you know, even not addressing him as Dr. Pierre, um, addressing him by dad and not putting a handle on his name, as you know, the old folks would say, um, put a handle and put some respect on my name. So they don't even, you know, do that as a courtesy um, for something that he worked entirely hard for. So, you know, just those type of things that we're dealing with within the system. Um, so yeah, you know, we have a privilege when it comes to finances and education, but it absolutely means nothing when we're dealing with um, racism. You're muted. And I think that's a really important piece because I, you know, being raised in the 80s, right? You know, being born in the late 60s, early, you know, 70s, and then the 80s, that's what I grew up in the Northern. That's what I kind of my family taught me that, oh, if you have an education, if you do this, if you do all these things, that um, their experiences, right? My father was one of, you know, at that age of where he had to sit on the back of the bus. It's like, they felt that those, those things would take those experiences away from me. And the reality of it is, I think it just taught us to assimilate better and not recognize or not uh, come together to address the constant insults, right? And, and like now um, there's space. And, and I thank the, the younger generation mm -hmm. for, um, for like, I, I feel freed, right? Finally. I, and, and, uh, and, and you talk about that. So it's, it's like you, you represent, because you're younger than me, what you know, I was always told, if you do that and you do that, you're not going to have any racism anymore. <laughs> and not, not, you know, and, and especially when we're dealing with institutions where it's ingrained in there. So it's ingrained. It's a part of the culture, so to speak. So, you know, we're constantly have to, to deal with it and navigate through it. And also as professionals, we have to deal with it and navigate through it. You know, only 4% of um, clinical psychologists are black. Only 2% are, or um, a number in that area of uh, physicians are black. 8% um, of 
speech and language pathologists are black. So, you know, those numbers are low. So we're going to be encountering people that don't look like us who are evaluating us. So if they're not aware of their biases, if they're not aware of how that comes into the room, if they're not aware of how culture comes into the room, because it does, then our, our children are being set up for failure. They just are. You know, if we're not thinking about not only um, what we've learned textbook wise regarding disability and uh, categorizations and diagnosis, if we're not also thinking about how culture can impact that, then um, then what you're getting is not a true diagnosis. And one of, and, and one of the things about the assessments, I mean, um, are, are there, has there been a change of doing more peer review that represents other cultures when they're developing these standardized tests that we're using to decide if a child's intelligent or not. Because I know that at one point, like the, you know, around the assessments that they, um, I was at least told that uh, nonverbal tests kind of help, not not take it away, but help uh, remove some of those biases away. Do you find that to be true or? Um, so, I am not a clinical psychologist, but I have studied the testing for my own benefit for my own children. Um, so when my child, and I'll just speak on my experience, when my child is getting any kind of assessment, I do ask for modified versions for her. Um, just because I already know that if you're going to give her a test that is completely based on verbal skills and depending on how anxious she is, she may not be able to verbalize things to you, that's going to put her at a disadvantage. So I'm going to ask if you're using that modified version that is, you know, was built for um, working with children who are non-vocal or um, have limited uh, vocabulary. Uh, can I jump in with a quick question kind of on, on that, on that vein? Um, so, What's your advice to parents in terms of what they can do? You know, obviously there's a lot of change that's necessary in these systems, but but what can parents do to help? And, you know, you mentioned the alternative or, or different kind of evaluation. Are there, are there resources to help point parents to, to even ask that question to say, hey, instead of this, whatever it may be, Woodcock Johnson, are there better alternatives or and there are the resources available for parents. So yes. how would you address kind of yeah. making so recommendations? Yeah. Just at right. the IEP meeting right. when we were discussing the evaluation, I just said to the school psychologist, um, are you going to use a modified version or is there a modified version that you're going to use um, since that her um, her vocabulary is limited? And then she explained the test that she was going to use. I also asked if they're trained in cultural uh, responsiveness um, because, and, and if they're aware of their own biases and that may be uncomfortable for um, some parents, but it is a question that I'm going to ask um, at the table because one, if you're not, and that's going to get you thinking like, oh, okay, she's, you know, she's aware of biases that are gonna be happening. Um, so I ask those mm -hmm. questions with the school psychologist or the SLP or the anybody who's doing the evaluations that are, my child is going to be evaluating that's going to be considered, I'm going to ask you certain questions about your your skill level. And as a parent, you and I'm not doing that as a 
this is not licensed mental health counselor Maria in the room. This is just parent yeah, yeah, to my yeah. children in the room that's asking right. these questions. Um, yes, my background does help me uh, in navigating those questions like, okay, these are the questions I need to ask, but I'm asking them for from a parent perspective of mm -hmm. let me make sure that you are um, working with my child and evaluating them from a culturally centered approach. Okay. So we have a couple of questions that have popped up here. And, and this one is just related to what we were just saying. Um, do you have, uh, this is from Holly. Do you have to know the specific name of the assessments in order to have them modified to fit your child's needs? Nope, not at all. Cause I did not know the modified uh, name. Um, and I just asked the question, is there a modified test or is there a test that you're going to use? And then she gave me the name and then I went and looked it up and, and researched it. So that would be my, um, my uh, suggestion to you. Okay. Uh, and we have another one here from Kim that says, I'm curious, have you found and, and that your professional background impacting how you're treated to be true, even if the teacher, principal, et cetera, are also black? Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> and this is, you know, not the case laughing at this for. <laughs> yeah. It's not the case for every instance, but we also have to understand that within our professional field, we are taught to act a certain way. So it does show up even if that person is black. Okay, great. Uh, and it looks like there might be some other other questions here. I'm going to look through. Uh, Pam, did you have any questions or uh, thoughts that you wanted to share? No, I didn't have one, but I... As soon as I said your name, they, they, they left, right? That's the way yeah. it works. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're, we're, we're waiting for some more okay. comments. I will say that uh, 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 Cheryl, our, our friend, uh, Heather Luke said hello. And uh, hi, ladies. Ant guy. Hey, somehow, somehow I'm an ant, but I, I think that was meant to say Ann guy. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so hello to Heather. Um, so anyway, we're still waiting for questions, but what, what else did you want to talk about today? Oh, are you talking about to us I'm now? Sure. Yeah, yeah, back, back oh, to you. Oh, so that, that pretty much was the end of my presentation. I'm okay, sorry. Okay. okay. <laughs> um, that, that was uh, pretty much just summing it up with, with that piece and um, all the other stuff. So all the things that um, I talked about, realize what Maria was saying is there's a, a different lens that, that we have when we look through and go through that and in and be aware of that. I mean, if you're advocating for or you're working with or helping or interacting with um, Black parents around special education, please be sensitive to the fact that it is different. We are treated differently um, in that microaggressions are real and that you, too, can stop and end microaggressions um, by stepping up and saying something if you see it. Mm -hmm. um, if you are advocating for a black parent and you know that the school is looking at them or treating them differently than you because you're white, you need to speak up and say something. Mm -hmm. um, and and so. I think it's also uh, important to note, especially for the professionals that are working with the parents, that um, sometimes the parents get labeled as resistant or, you know, they're hard to work with and all of these, these um, labels and Aggressive. Exactly. You know, angry black woman, all of these things. Um, but you have to realize that 
Yes, that is your first experience with that parent, but that is not the parent's first experience with somebody in your role, especially if their children are in high school level. Think about how many teachers, how many guidance counselors, school psychologists that they've had to um, interact with that probably were never took culture into consideration, um, were disrespectful, were racist, and that that parent now comes in with a certain defense mechanism off off bat because even me as a professional i come in with a certain defense mechanism um because of how i've been treated so we're talking about not only you traumatizing our children but parents are traumatized and that trauma shows up in many different ways so you have to realize that um your experience is is your first experience but not theirs so they have a lot of overwhelm and frustration and a lot of other feelings that they have been dealing with. So it comes out and it's probably nothing personal against you, but the system that we're having to navigate and deal with that is very difficult to navigate navigate and deal with. And this is me as a professional saying, mm -hmm. it has been extremely hard to navigate these systems for my children. I myself had to go and hire an attorney to be able to navigate these systems because of how difficult they were um, bringing race into it and nobody taking that into consideration. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you mentioned the trauma piece, which is so critical. I mean, not just for for our own personal trauma, but even getting into you know generational trauma and, and the impacts that that have been you know from from decades and lifetimes before. Um, so, I mean, that, that piece, certainly trauma has a, a, a direct correlation with how we respond in situations. If you, you go in kind of based on all this traumatic experience, almost in a fight or flight type of response, you know, it's important for people to, to realize that. So we have a couple more comments and questions and we're getting to uh, just about time here, but we'll go through a couple more. I want to yeah, go ahead. Pam. I yeah. So Miss Davis, I had a question, you know, in your sort of professional um, sort of experience, isn't there an over, um, over-diagnosis of Black children labeled as ED or some certain other uh, disabilities? And so it's very interesting, like when we talked about the labeling and what they're writing in, um, in the children's IEPs, you know, aggressive and stuff like that, and how it could be used mm -hmm. with law enforcement, that's a big concern. And it seems like it's a big process to sort of overturn some of this stuff. I mean, what would be you guys' advice for it, that? I mean, I, I feel like parents are just tired. You it know, is. there's so and much. There has, well, I, this is something I'm actually currently in the midst of doing because there has been language put in my own child's files that have, you know, is a concern for me later down the line, especially with my five-year-old son. Um, and this is something that we're currently, you know, battling back and forth. And it is a tedious process. Um, and a lot of times as, as Black parents, and the sad part is, we don't have time to kind of, you know, be sad about it and, and be upset about it and and get the, the self-care that we need because it's constant having to go through the next trial and the next trial and, oh, let me go and deal with this issue. And here's another mm -hmm. issue. So we're not given any grace um, from anybody. And we're constantly having to pull ourselves up by the bootstrap and just work through it, which is traumatizing, right? So yes, our children are constantly 
um, misdiagnosed. They're constantly put in that EBD category, which is not even a mental health diagnosis. You know, and a lot of that is because. Wait, did you say it's not a mental health diagnosis? No, it's not. Not has what? No, no, emotional. Disturbance is not in the DSM. It is not a clinical diagnosis. It is a school categorization. And I like to say it's like the category that they just throw you in when they can't figure out, you know, a what category to put you in. And a lot yeah. of that so is how cultural can... context to it. So if I'm showing up with certain things and my evaluator is not looking at the cultural context, they're going to be like, you know, just put them in the EBD category. Instead of looking at trauma, anxiety, ACEs, all of these things that we know impact black children, especially, um, they're not looking at those things. So it's like, hey, then this is, what I think of it is as a throwaway category. Like people are like, oh, there's an OHI. No, that EBD for black children is a throwaway category. Oh, <laughs> I, would, I would say in, 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 in my experience in research and people I've dealt with, it, it seems like that is, a way to push okay. kids out, out of the school environment and the school to prison pipeline. And then anytime there's anything going on, like, oh, they had one of their little episodes again, is, is how it sort if of you look at the language and even ask out, them, though, it's more of we can't quite figure out right. what the diagnosis is that they have, but you know, they're having certain behavioral issues. So we're thinking it's this that they need to be put, placed in. When research has shown by and far, when evaluators look at black students, that behavior is the first thing that they're automatically thinking. Right, right. Anyway, yeah. That's the issue. Yeah. And, and never getting to what lies beneath, what lies beneath behavior. What, mm -hmm. what is the trauma? What is the experience? Exactly. You know, I mean, when I see kids getting restrained and secluded, more often than not, what I see is a kid that's not being appropriately accommodated, a kid exactly. that's frustrated and not having their needs met, has a trauma history. So, so, so much of this, I agree. I mean, you know, it's just, it, it's, it's not a, it's not a category. It's uh we're just going to look at the fire and we're not going to look at, and push them in what the cause is, yeah. yeah so we have a couple more comments here, and we're we're running just about out of time, but we'll get a couple yeah. more here. Uh, lots All of right. uh, oh, here here was one that I wanted to bring up. Uh, this was again from Heather, uh, which was where do professionals obtain education related to cultural competence? Is there a certification? So um, I am a big believer that there is no such thing as cultural competence, and most professionals are now getting there as well. It's called uh, cultural responsiveness or cultural humility, because you'll never be competent in culture. I'm a Black woman, and I'll never be competent in Black women, okay? So um, <laughs> places that do it, Autism in Black, which is my um, company, uh, does do culturally responsive training um, on the intersection of race and disability. And there's many other um, organizations out there that do uh, DNI, which is diversity and inclusion trainings as well. So check out for that. I think there's some certifications for that too, Heather, um, for the cultural responsiveness uh, classes that you can take. You can get like, um, like a little, like we're like twelve months class. I actually thought of doing it, and then I was like, oh no, <laughs> I got enough as it is. <laughs> you sure you're not too busy. <laughs> All right. So just the comment here, great discussion and critical message. So, you know, lots of, lots of positive comments here. 
Um, let's see. And somebody else commenting on the, um, you know, getting emotionally disturbed. I've seen the children yeah. with trauma are frequently labeled as ED. I find that problematic and glad Very you're bringing good. it up. That's um, a really good point. Yeah. Yep. Uh, let's see. Uh, let's bring this up here. Uh, my son turns three and we have our first IP meeting in January. What should I expect or even ask them to make sure my son gets everything he needs to strive in school? That's, that's probably a really big question, but any, any immediate. Uh, this seems really important, right? The first IP meeting, big deal. Um, I, I, it is almost close to impossible to answer that question without understanding what your child needs. Um, I, I guess my recommendation to you is to, again, um, look at what are his pockets that get in the way of learning. What 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 can he do, and what does he need help with? And start the process from there, and making sure you have good data to show. Well, this is what he can do. This is what he can't do, and this is what we need to where we want to get. Mm -hmm. That's great. Great advice. You, you know, I'm a big fan of uh, Dr. Ross Green, and he's always trying to figure out, like, what's getting in the kids' way? You know, kids do well if they can. So what is it that's getting in their way? So that, that's great advice. Uh, and there's just a couple more comments here to share. Um, I wanted to share this one um, for uh, you, Maria, that says, everything Maria is saying matches up with what I'm seeing as a special education professional. It's difficult. And I know a lot of times that as the staff um, it's even hard for you because it's truly the institution that that kind of drives everything, especially in Florida. Um, we see a lot of, you know, the teachers really don't have wiggle room in what they can do um, because of the institution that is driving what they're supposed to do. Um, so I know it is very difficult that, you know, to, to kind of advocate the way you want to. And I understand that, but we have to get away from that because it is literally life or death when it comes to black students. It really is. And in Florida, isn't that's where they had the case of that little girl that they, um, that you all shared at our conference, right? There's, was there a specific role that, yeah, that, that just traumatized me watching that because um, Maria, can, do you know the name of that that law that allows district the Baker Act law? Are yep. you the Baker Act? Yes, yeah. problematic. Um, can you everybody, what that is? It's, it's horrible. It's problematic. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, and it could be really great, but what it is used and intended for is not the purpose of what people actually use it for. Um, so, with Baker Act, it would be a. Um, Anybody who is a mental health professional or a physician or has any police officers have the ability to um, kind of hospitalize somebody for a three-day hold um, based on them uh, wanting to harm themselves or somebody else, which is complete basics of it. Um, but a lot of times it is misused uh, because when somebody is truly trying to harm themselves or others, if they say, I'm not going to do it in the presence of the police officer or when they get to the hospital, they'll be released. But the impact it's having on our children in the school system is that they de-escalate right to, oh, let me call the SRO officer, oh, or let me call the police. And now they're taking, handcuffing this child, putting this child in the uh, back of a police car, which all of that is traumatizing. Then taking this child to a hospital um, for, you know, psychiatric uh, floor for three days. 
based yeah. on what they were seeing in the school instead of having a actual, and a lot of times it's just the teachers and the staff and nobody with clinical experience actually going in and um, assessing and addressing the issue. So the escalation procedures in the school system are horrible and they really have to learn de-escalation tactics um, because this is a, a misused law. Yeah, and unfortunately, even 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 not having adequate de-escalation, um, you know, skills, very often it's it's a, you know, perhaps well-intentioned but poorly trained educator that actually is escalating the child, is making the situation worse. And, and there's such better things we can be doing, but there's a lot of things that get done in school that results in things getting worse, and and that ends in far worse outcomes for for kids. So we are just about at time, but I, I want to take a minute um, as we're wrapping up here. This has been a really great conversation. We've had a lot of comments. I'm sure. Sorry, we didn't get to all of them, uh, but definitely a, a great, um, a great interest in talking more about this. So, you know, Cheryl, you know, I've got your number and uh, <laughs> nowhere to find you. And Maria, it's been great to have you on today. Great to meet you as well. Would love to connect with you more. But want to thank you both for for coming on today and and talking about this. Uh, you know, this is this is a, a conversation that needs to continue and, you know, get in get into more that we can do, um, you know, both in, in the kind of the general sense of what you were doing here, but also, you know, um, talking through, you know, the race issue and doing better. You know, we can and we need to. So uh, thank you both uh, for coming on today. And if you have any final words, we'll we'll let you give them now. But but thank you both. Um, I'll just say uh, thank you for having me. This has been a great conversation. Um, follow me on Autism in BLK, and I have the Autism in Black podcast, and we do address a lot of these issues. I actually have an episode coming out tomorrow about speech and language pathology, um, and we address some of the uh, cultural issues within that. So be on the lookout for that. Yeah, and please be sure to share those with us because we're always happy to amplify the, the work that you're doing. Thank you. Excellent. And I just want to say thank you for having me here. And uh, I hope some of the information we shared um, makes, encourages a parent, encourages a parent to feel like that they can get through this. And I hope the information was helpful. I hope that they can use some of the techniques. And Guy, I'll make sure I give you um, that purpose slide so you can put it on the website. Um, so people can use it and download it and all that good stuff. Okay, so thank you for being here. And you can find me at um, Advocating for Kids. Uh, I do do training, coaching, consulting. So feel free to reach out to me. Thank you very much. Yeah, and as I recall, you actually will advocate for kids even in different states, uh, yes. especially now with, with the situation that a lot of these things are virtual. Exactly. Okay, so that's great exactly. if people are watching to know. And Pamela. Thank you for joining us today um, for this and uh, being part of the uh, part of the interview. So thank you all very much. Uh, I'm going to let you let you go. Um, Pamela, did you have any last words? No, I just want to say I appreciate you guys' time. It was very informational. So um, thank you. Great. So I'm just going to give a couple quick announcements, but thank you. And I'll, I'll let you guys all go here. Um, so a few uh, quick announcements. Um we do not have a session in two weeks because of the holiday. Uh, it would fall on, uh, I guess, the, uh, let's see, was it New Year's Eve or, or somewhere in that time frame? So we decided to skip next week, but we've got another one scheduled for two weeks after that. And we've got events scheduled until May. So we've got a lot of great stuff coming up. 
uh, would encourage you again to uh, you know follow us on the Alliance Against Seclusion Restraints Facebook page if you don't already. Uh, look into information about the Keeping All Students Safe Act. And thank you for joining us today. Uh, we look forward to seeing you again soon. So thank you very much.